Please turn with me to uh, the book of Exodus. It's the second in uh, your Bibles, if you're new to the Bible. And maybe it's even your, your first time studying. Uh, we'd love for you to take the, that blue Bible that's provided in the seat back. Uh, just take it home. I'd love for you to study with us, to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, you're definitely familiar with the book of Exodus. And uh, we begin our sermon series through the entire book today. As you turn there, I want you to know that I know that there are 40 chapters. John was 20, and we did it for like a year and a half. So some of you may actually be thinking, do I want to stay at this church for three years for this? Well, I, I would leave you with this assurance that Uh, Exodus is indeed long, but it moves quickly, and you can't microscope it like you do other things or you'll miss the bigger picture. I give you this analogy, and then we read the text and begin, but if you were to look at Mount Rushmore in a microscopic view, it's just not as beautiful. It looks gray, it looks very just kind of cold, just solid. If you zoom out too far, all you see are like, you know, the, the mountains of Dakota. You know, you, it's just like, oh, I've seen a mountain. But when you zoom in to, to, to the right, to the right perspective, and you can see that glorious etching of those founding fathers, you're like, ah, oh, this, is, this is the right view. This is the right lens. I think that's the challenge as we switch from book to book in in different parts of the Bible. Sometimes we can zoom in like we did with Psalm 23. You're like, whoa, this is amazing. And then other times if you zoom in too much, you've actually missed the intended picture. So I assume that the book of Exodus could be done in 25 to 30 sermons at that ideal pace. So just adjusting expectations there. But that will require us to read much. So this morning is a good example. The text is Exodus 1 and 2. But to begin the service, I'm just going to read the first few services, I mean the first few verses, and we will read the remainder of it throughout the story and let it unfold on its own. We begin with Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Why Exodus? Why Exodus in this season of life, in this stage of our church's development? It's a fair question. There's so many pressing issues in our particular day. Even earlier, just praying for upcoming elections. And the pressure of new governmental leaders potentially being in place. Or we think more on a family scale. We consider the things that are going on 
in our church family as a whole, but also in each family represented here in particular. Uh, the pressures, the trials, the, the difficulties, the, uh, the, the practical experiences of just deprivation and downtroddenness, the, the heaviness of, of health, of, of relationships broken, of, of finances out of sorts. Like, why Exodus? I mean, we've got political issues going on. We've got personal family issues going on. And then we just consider what's going on in our own hearts at times. I mean, our lives aren't as good as we make them out to be on social media. Some things we just don't post. There's depression and seasons of darkness internally. There's struggles with destructive desires. There's the the debilitation of decaying bodies. And, And we're asking, like, why Exodus? What would Exodus have to do with any of those things? Believe it or not, it touches all of them. Every one of them. But it does so in an intentionally indirect way. The book of Exodus properly understood rewrites your personal narrative. That's what it's designed to do. Exodus is intended to rewrite your personal narrative. The story that you see yourself in. And in so doing, it will readjust how you handle Catastrophes from without, problems from within, trials all around. Remember the old uh, Fanny Crosby? This is my story, this is my song. What's interesting about Crosby, Sam, is she frames it in terms of delight and good days. Yet when we listen carefully to Exodus, we hear our real story, our real song, and we understand and embrace that it's not always played in a major key. Sometimes it sounds dark. Sometimes it sounds ominous. Sometimes the movements don't make sense. And yet all of it is our story. What you will begin to see as we make our way through the book is that there are echoes of Exodus throughout the entire Bible. These patterns over and over again of the oppression and suffering of God's people. Some kind of miraculous deliverance that's done in some strange way that you can't predict. And then some glorious end out on the other side. Expressed most clearly in Jesus, culminating in Revelation itself. Once you see it, you won't unsee it. And thus, Exodus may be the key for many of us to embracing the entire Bible as our book, our story, not just our favorite verses in the New Testament. Which, that's the second benefit of studying Exodus. Not only does it indirectly, but intentionally speak to our our struggles and sorrows that we experience in the story of our life, 
but it also broadens for us the application of the entire Bible. It will fix for you that tendency that you have, and I have it too, to say, well, I like the God portrayed in the New Testament, the one in the Old Testament I'm not as really comfortable with. I don't know that that, I mean, yes, he's, he's God, and I know he's the same, but functionally, we just kind of have this like, Exodus isn't the normal place we go for a Bible study with a friend. And yet maybe it should be. Because this is our story. This is our song. Like any good song, it begins with an introduction. There's a prelude. There there are some opening lines that are going to orient you to the entire work. You're not going to pick up on the melody yet. We'll get there. But you got to get warmed up. You need to get oriented. You can just tell how a song starts, like if, if this is going to resonate with you in some way. You get a trajectory of where it's going. You can hear its beat. You know the key that it's in. And you're just, you're, you're anticipating a trajectory. And so also Exodus has a divinely intended uh, introduction. And it, What I want you to understand as we step into it today is that it's actually a little longer than what you're comfortable with. And what's been excruciating for me this week personally, just in all transparency, is it's really hard to wrap your head around it. It's normally not a good idea to tell somebody before you start a sermon that this is hard. But let me explain what I mean by that. Let me tell you what's hard. It isn't the story. The story is easy to follow. What's hard about it is you have to actually force yourself to zoom out and not just look at a verse or a sentence or even a group of verses. You have to see the whole thing together. I'll spare you the details. You'll see it throughout. But truly, what we have here in this opening introduction are four subsequent accounts, four different stories that follow one another, but they're they're woven together to make one strand holding on to a truth at the end of chapter 2 that will actually reorient us around God's regard for his people. That's what the introduction is all about. The regard of God for his people in the moments of greatest darkness and despair. But you will not get that. You will not see it. You should not see it until you followed the threads of these first four accounts or stories. So that's how I'm going to do it today. There's going to be certain things that historically you're going to want me to jump into, and I, I just can't. Maybe we can have a Q&A at the door afterward. We've got to get the story, the stories, and there's four. And if you like to follow these, because there's four, I'll give you the labels of them ahead of time. There's a, it begins with a story of blessing, which is followed by a story of burden, which is followed by a story of hope, which is followed by a story of despair. And then he gives the point. Blessing, burden, 
hope, despair. Those are the the stories woven together in the introduction that uphold the grand truth at the conclusion of chapter 2 that we'll discuss. So follow these with me. These overlap, they, they go together. And let's just begin by looking at this, this first, the, the story of blessing. Notice how Moses picks up the pen. You need to understand something, cool historical fact. Genesis through Deuteronomy were all one book. You're like, well, why are they divided into five? Because the scrolls available to them at that particular time were only so long. So when they ran out of scroll, Moses puts down the divinely inspired pen and then he then picks up the next scroll. He has to start start over and reconnect them. It's all one story, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So we're just really picking up where we left off a couple years ago as a church. And Moses is, is very clear to actually establish a connection between what he wrote at the end of the last scroll and what he's writing at the beginning of this one. Just in case the scrolls ever got separated, he wants you to know that these two belong together. And here's how he does that. He's reminding us of the grand theme of Genesis and that it is continuing into the present moment. That God is still determined to bless his people in a special way. Genesis was a book of blessing. And so we see that the whole Genesis 1 ideal of, of people like populating the earth, showing the favor of God, like through like families growing, like God promised to do that through that special seed after the fall of Adam. And, and he was doing it all through Genesis. But we ended up in this weird spot, a providentially prepared spot, where they were supposed to experience this blessing of propagation in a particular place. Like God intended for them to have a base of operations by which they would experience God's blessing and then expose it to the world. But guess what? While the population part is happening, the the growing and the blessing of families, they're in the wrong place. But that's not out of accord with the plan of God. Just flip over to Genesis and look at the last few lines. What do we see? Joseph, that guy who got them to Egypt in the first place, saving their lives in so doing, remained in Egypt, verse 22, and in his father's house, he lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were counted as Joseph's own, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him in Egyptian practice, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. How did Genesis end? It ended with their most famous patriarch, like the guy who God literally used to save the world, dead, mummified, and stuck in Egypt. But he left them with a promise. God will visit. God will take you out of here. God will take you from this land to the land. And so we find in the opening part of Exodus that the plan of God is still continuing. 
They are still being blessed. Notice how all of the people involved in that particular deathbed ceremony had been present. And and they were there and they were safe in Egypt. And they were fruitful, verse 7. And they increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong. Uh, Fancy words that start with M. Multitudinous and mighty. That's what happened to them. They were blessed to such a degree that they became a multitude. There were a ton of them. But it wasn't just quantity, it was quality. They, they were mighty, they were strong. God was working, he was blessing. And so you're starting off, and you're hearing the first few lines of this song, and you're thinking, I like this. Oh, this is one of those feel-good songs. It's like those, you know, some of those great ballads from the 50s, you know, that make you feel all like peppy and warm inside. So I like where this is headed. Blessing. God's going to visit. But then all of a sudden, you get a few measures into the song and it switches. It goes from blessing to burden. In fact, here's the crazy thing. The blessing is the means by which the burden comes. They're going to experience burden on account of the very fact that God sent them such blessings in that particular place. This is weird. And it's only the intro. Notice the burden in verses 8 through 22. I'll read just a little bit and then I'll stop and comment and continue to read on. We begin at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's important. Take special notice of the word know. It's the Hebrew word yada. It will show up again. It does not mean what you think it means as a 21st century Westerner. Knowing being intellectual capacity, like he was out of Joseph's mental awareness. That's not what he's saying. Knowing most often in the Old Testament conveyed experiential relationship. It's often the word even used to describe marital intimacy. And Adam knew his wife Eve. It conveys not just uh, uh, knowledge, but a relational knowledge. I mean, relationship with so-and-so. So here, a new king takes over. If you know anything about uh, the uh, Egyptian dynasties, it was a long line but a broken one. There were constantly new powers coming into place and what was supposed to be a successive line of kings would then be disrupted by another successive line of kings. And what had happened is like the new line doesn't feel the same obligations to the policies established by the old line. And so this new guy, he gets into power, and he knows full well, because they took good records of the special favor poured out on God's people, politically. Remember, they enjoyed special status in Egypt. They were given the land of Goshen. Like, they were like guests of the Egyptian government. They were favored. They were given their own spot where they could prosper, and like, this was a pre-existing relationship, and in light of all the amazing things that Joseph did, like, each of the new pharaohs would honor that obligation. I mean, after all, the guy saved the world and expanded the empire. But this guy... The new guy, I mean, it's been hundreds of years. He's thinking, 
I, I, don't, I don't have to honor that. I'm not in relationship with that. And so he, he sees things a little differently. Look at verse 9. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Notice that, the blessing. Multitudinous and mighty. The very thing that God gave them is the thing that this guy is concerned about. They're too many. They're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and they escape from the land. Now, pause here and note something, please. What the guy is doing is actually a well-established play in totalitarian regimes all through the history of the world. A friend of mine here in the church has challenged me to read with him uh, a, a book on propaganda. I would never in my life have read such a book had someone not actually encouraged me. But what's been interesting as I read this is like, I see propaganda. Notice what the guy does. He takes a group of people and then begins to throw out a bunch of hypothetical situations about how they might be some kind of threat to them. And then on the basis of those hypotheticals, he's actually going to impose some policies that will enable him to not only protect himself from those people or use them for his protection, but also to use them for his provision. This Pharaoh is maniacal. Like, he's like Moriarty and Sherlock. Like, he's got this evil plan, and he knows how to execute it. And like, he's doing, he's doing some serious evil to the special seat of God. And what is it that he says? Notice all these hypotheticals. We need to be wise. We need to be shrewd lest they multiply. If war breaks out, so there's hypothetical number one, a war could happen. And they join our enemies. There's hypothetical number two. They could join our enemies in that war. Why would they join their enemies? They enjoy special favored status. They're living on the, like, like the fat of the land. Like they're doing great. There's been no record of civil disobedience, and yet the guy is just erecting a narrative. He's erecting a story that will allow them to be subjugated. He says, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And there's where he shows his hand. Because think about this from a political perspective for a moment. Like, if you're the king of Egypt and you don't like these people, you just get rid of them. Say, sorry, your, uh, your rent contract has expired. Get out of here. But that's not what he wants. He doesn't want protection. He wants prosperity from them. He does not want them to leave the land. He sees with them an opportunity for the expansion of his empire. An increase of his fame and glory. And so he establishes a program very gradually, very radically, I mean very gradually like all wicked regimes would do. And it unfolds in two phases. The first phase is enslavement. The second is more extreme, and I'll talk about it in a second. But notice the enslavement in verses 11 and following. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. 
and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You see the policy? It's pretty easy to follow. It's, it's the subjugation of a group of people. And it is, it is wickedly brilliant. The first thing he does is he demotes them. They were just this kind of independent people who had their own means of existence. They were shepherds out in the, you know, in the highlands of Egypt in the northeast. And they're just thinking like, okay, this is them on their own. But now, publicly it's stated, they will be under our service. They are the working class, if you will. We are the upper class. This is a lower class. They demote them in the eyes of the people by setting taskmasters over them. And the Hebrew word just denotes people with might and right. They've got a badge and they've got a gun. And they can compel these people to do what they want them to do. And so what is it that they have to do? A group of people who have spent hundreds of years in the shepherding trade now all of a sudden have to become builders. I think this is, I need to talk to my dad. He's a second generation brick mason. And he actually told me when I used to go work with him. He made me work with him during the summers. He said, the reason I make you do this is because whatever job you do after this for the rest of your life will be easy. It's so funny to me that the, the very definition of hard labor and cruelty is brick and mortar. But it isn't just conscription, like... Conscription is when a government makes people do things for the good of the government. Conscription in and of itself is not bad, right? I mean, think about the Selective Service Act of, I guess, 1917. Uh, that established a draft in World War I and World War II. I don't know anybody who's going like, that was terrible. You, you, you care about the country. You're, you're glad that people were willing to go, but they had to have some means of getting them there. Conscription in and of itself wasn't evil. What's particularly evil in this case was the cruelty. Did you notice the, the, the way that, that it's depicted here? It, it wasn't just that they were conscripted or that they had to work, but it was cruel. The intent of it was to keep them from populating. The intent was to prosper Egypt. So by making them build these store cities, they would take the men away from their families, and you can't reproduce if you're not with your family so they take them away from their families they then give them all kinds of hard labor and guess what when you treat somebody like an animal you don't have to be very humane or at least back then you didn't have to be if they were sick if they weren't performing you just get rid of them remember they've been demoted they're subhuman that they are now a tool. They're not a, they're not a person. And so it says that, that they were given heavy burdens and uh, they were afflicted. And I mean, just look through it. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They, they made their lives bitter. Like, it was like they were trying to literally work them to death. But he didn't want to work them too much to death because he still needed a labor force. Again, maniacal, crazy. 
Blessing has become burden. Now, now the people are enslaved. And why are they enslaved? Because they kept growing. But here's the crazy thing. Notice, in the middle of that little thing, it still says that God's plan could not be stopped. Even though they could only occasionally journey back to see their families, the text says that they were still fruitful and multiplied. To the degree that it brings about even more difficulty for them because it says after that, once they started spreading throughout the land of Egypt and not staying confined to the land of Goshen, it says in our text that they were basically afraid of them or that they, they were in dread of them. Other ways you could translate that is they were disgusted by them. They loathed them. They didn't like these Asiatic peoples encroaching upon their cultural way of life. They they wanted to exterminate them. Does anybody here who has ever taken a class in world history recognize any parallels whatsoever? It's like the evil dictator playbook has been this like secret thing that's been passed down for generations. I mean, when you consider Hitler and the rise of the Third Reich, he followed every one of these. He began early in re-educating people on how the Aryan race was supreme over and above all the others. And then he said that a unique threat to that were the vermin of the Jews. And so he demoted them, in fact, with policies and procedures like there were official boycotts against buying anything from, from German producers, I mean, excuse me, from Jewish producers. I mean, it, it ended up in the actual educational curriculum that we're a superior race and they're an inferior race and they're a threat and they're the ones that caused World War II in the first place. I mean, like, I mean, excuse me, they're the ones that, that caused the Great Depression. I mean, like, it was just a, the, the reworking of a narrative and, and what it did, like, it actually culminated with that, that night of crystal glass. I don't know if you remember that or not. But like there was this one climactic moment, I think it's around 1938, where the, the government actually made a policy of aggression where they were going to act out against all the Jewish businesses and all the Jewish people. Not publicly executing them yet, but burning all of their buildings, destroying all of their stuff. And the whole people bought into that the allies obviously set back and say this is terrible everybody around but the people within are like whoa maybe they really are a threat because they're taking such drastic action against them i don't know what's going on in the egyptian psyche at the moment but i can only imagine that this is a plan for a dictatorship that is being perfectly executed because as he publicly enforces them to go to these work camps, these labor camps, they are now confirmed in the minds of the people as being something less than, which then sets up the second installment of his plan. The first plan didn't work. They continued to spread anyway. The people are disgusted by them. They don't want to see them anymore. And so he says, all right, we're going to have to take more drastic measures. And so we move from phase one to phase two. We move from enslavement to infanticide. And even this phase, oh, it unfolds so gradually. It starts off covertly. And then 
is eventually conscripted. Friends, the reason why I'm slowing down here, I'm not trying to, to ruin your day, I want you just to understand the real pain, cruelty, oppression that the people of God have felt. These are your people. This is the way evil responds to those who are in the light. Sometimes it's designed by the government in very subtle ways to attack. In this one, we see, again, the conscription of some midwives, some supervisors who are looking over uh, the entire trade, if you will, of helping women bring their children into the world. And it says that they're Hebrew midwives. This doesn't mean necessarily they were Hebrews. It meant that they were midwives to the Hebrews. And just second note, Hebrew, and used in a context like this, doesn't mean Israelite. They could have said Israelite. Hebrew is a broader term that's just like, it means you're from Western Asia. And anytime you're dealing with, with different people groups in the Bible, Hebrew is the broader term. It could be anybody, Israel and then other people who are like them. Just like if I were to go to Africa, I don't tell the guys I'm a Floridian. I tell them I'm an American so as to distinguish myself from somebody from Great Britain. You understand? So what's going on here is this, this secret plan for this, this institution in Egypt of midwifery overseen by these two ladies in particular to start selectively assassinating all the, the Hebrew baby boys during childbirth. And it says in our text, they do this while they're upon the stool. What that means is at the moment of conception, these women and those who work for them would be able to do things to the child that would make it look like a natural death. He says, you've got to do it while they're in delivery. So he's not just going out and trying to exterminate everybody. He's doing so in a covert way. He's targeting the boys because this would be the future military. He wants to keep the women because he needs the labor force. And then at any point he decides that he's done enough damage to the male population, he can rescind the order. But notice that I've explained it, but notice it in your text. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua, when you were... When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But notice there's still prosperity amid the pain. The midwives feared God. They honored their conscience. They knew that God wouldn't want this, even though Pharaoh represented a God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. This is unheard of. And yet they do it courageously. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Like some time goes by, you know, like in that day and age, it's not like the boys wore blue and the girls wore pink. I mean, you can't really tell the gender of a child for several years of their development. And so he's beginning to notice, like three or four years later, as the children continue to mature, like, where are all these four-year-old boys coming from? And he remembers his policy. And so he goes back to these two women in particular. (laughs) He says, why are they living? And the midwife said to the Pharaoh, 
Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, many people lose a lot of time in ink over trying to figure out, well, did they lie here? Maybe it is true. Maybe, maybe the women were more private. Maybe they were determined to deliver on their own and not call for the midwife. Maybe they heard about the policy. Maybe even these two women tipped them off ahead of time and said, hey, we're coming. You better figure out a way to deliver this baby on your own and not call for our services. But whatever happens... They are actively resisting evil in the best way they know how. And the text doesn't comment on whether it was a lie or whether it was not a lie. That's not the point. The point is they are an instrument of deliverance for God's people. And he is protecting them despite the evil designs of a mastermind dictator over them. His plan cannot be thwarted. And so, verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. There they are again. The blessing of God is continuing. Multitudinous and mighty. But hear me. This is strange. It is subtle. But it is true. Once again, the blessing of God will actually fuel the burden that they experience. Like if we stop the introduction there, you're thinking like, oh, Wow, God just always overrules the designs of wicked rulers. But notice what happens in this particular instance. That protection and that prosperity offered to them will lead to more pain because now the Pharaoh will make this infanticide a public policy. It was private. It was being done through the medical sector. But notice what it says in verse 22. I'm glad there's not much commentary here, but this is horrific. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Every son that is born to the Jews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around, but like... It's the very blessing of God that causes him to increase this burden and make it a public policy that all these children would be offered to the gods of Egypt and the Nile. Why the Nile? One, it was clean. Rivers in the ancient Near East focused as the sewer system. You throw a baby in the water and it's out of sight and out of mind. There's no masses of dead bodies. It just goes away. It's psychologically helpful. And then second, they could be viewing it as their religious duty. After all, the Nile represented the representation of the, I mean, the Egyptian pantheon. They would just be saying, well, we're, we're offering, this is our service to our God. Do you see the maniacal, twisted, evil brilliance engineered against the people of God like this became public policy how long it lasted we do not know I think that that it naturally had to have ended at some point very soon just because of the moral objections to people in fact Pharaoh's own daughter won't even 
like follow through with the plan. But it was a plan nonetheless. And you zoom out for a second and you start to look at where you're at in the story. And like you're listening to these first few lines of the intro. And you were thinking at first, oh, I like this song. It's a song of blessing. And then you start hearing like some of these chords and they're not making any sense. And it's a little, it's a little jarring and it's a little grating. And you're like, whoa, blessing has become burden. What kind of story is this? I don't know that I like this song. But the composer, the composer rescues it. In fact, he rescues it in such a way that you begin to think, oh, well, maybe they just messed up in those lines. Like, you know, maybe the guy, like, playing the piece, he just screwed up there, and now, like, they're back on track in the next chapter. Because we move from blessing and burden to hope. Notice this next movement of hope. In the context of statewide infanticide, one child is presented as surviving. There's all kinds of signs of hope here. We'll read it together, beginning of verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months when she could hide him no longer, she took, him, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Oh, you see how the... You see how the, 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 like the sound of this thing is changing? There's all kinds of notes of hope in here. I mean, can I just list them for you briefly? The first one is, it says he was born of a Levite man and woman. And the people who were reading this, when Moses wrote it, they're probably the, the, that second generation of people in the wilderness. Like, they already knew that the Levites were that special group that God would work through to be intermediaries with God. You're like, oh, this is a good sign. We got a Levite being born. Like, he's the guy that's surviving. So there's a sole survivor. He's a Levite. And then on top of that, like, his mother recognizes him as uniquely good. Hebrew tov, that word used over and over again in Genesis 1. What is goodness? We defined it last week as that which is conducive to life. This kid is marked as, as good. There's something about him that, that gave his mother even extra impetus to make sure that he would be delivered and cared for. And so she hides him for three months, and then there's our next sign of hope. What does she do? When he gets too big to be hidden in the house, she, she makes this, and here's the word, ark of pitch, and sets it on the water. 
anybody who's read through Genesis sees another sign of hope here, you're thinking, last time, one of the people of God constructed an ark with pitch and placed it on the waters of destruction. It led to deliverance for an entire multitude. There's, see these, these notes of hope? Like, wow, this is amazing. So she hides him there. And whether she intended for him to be sent down the river, hoping that somebody would pick him up and adopt him, or whether or not she just hid them there whenever she thought that they were going to come and inspect her house, we do not know, but this is what we do know. While he's sitting there in the reeds, in the bulrushes, Pharaoh's daughter, like the last person on earth that you think you would want to find this thing, finds it. And yet, he's crying. She has that natural compassion on him. Anyone who's ever adopted a child understands that. Like, you, you see the helplessness of this child in that state. And she enters into that. And things become even better. She wants to save him. And listen to this. Miriam, his sister, happens to be there and can arrange for the, the wet nurse, the person who feeds him, to be his very own mother. Not only does she get to raise her child those first three to four years, that's how long the weaning process took place in that culture, but she gets paid for it. Pharaoh is paying for the future deliverer of Israel to stay alive and to be educated in who he really is and who his people really are. I hear hope. Sure, I heard blessing and I heard burden. But here, I'm just hearing note of hope after hope after hope. And you're thinking, it's turning around. Okay, I'm liking this song. I can deal with that. They just messed up a few measures. But uh, this thing's going to take off. Even the name, like her formal adoption of him, when you named a child, that was the adoption. Calling him Moses. Moshe. Like, he's the son which was drawn out of the water. He's the one who will be characterized by deliverance, by rescue. Water being a certain grave. And he grows up. And you hear what you think is more hope, but I'm going to warn you, and this is where we conclude the account. The, um, that account of, of hope then ends with an account of despair. Because just when you think it's finally going to turn around, and sorry for your your head to get hurt moving back and forth so much, but it's God's word, not mine, it gets bad again. Because the guy, he grows up, and you see hope, but then it just all falls to pieces. And here's how it goes down. Notice, I'll read quickly and explain as I read. Verse 11, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to, notice this, his people and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and notice this, one of his people. With whom is Moses identifying? The Hebrews, the Israelites. You're like, yes, you've got this guy on the inside. I mean, he's got the protection of the Egyptian government and he's like Batman, It's this vigilante for justice. Like he cares about what's going on with his people. Like he's there, he's lurking in the shadows. Like he's watching what goes down with them. And and notice what he looks and sees. Very important word. He looks and sees. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And in verse 12, he looked this way and that. 
And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And you're thinking like, the rebellion strikes back. Like there's there's a fight here. Like maybe Moses is the guy. And you're you're like, this is amazing. Like look, he's already like, he's knocked off one. You know, just got to do it one at a time. And like maybe they can overthrow Egypt. Maybe they can get out of there. But it doesn't go like he planned. Here's where the despair begins to ring loudly. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. So he not only wants to be a savior, but he wants to be a judge because he sees these two guys fighting. He's like, I can help them. I can, I can govern them. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who made you a ruler? Who gave you executive authority? Who gave you judicial authority? And they reject his rule. They reject his offer of rescue and help. This isn't good. He says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Moses was well-intended, but he didn't think out the plan very well. You can't kill a government employee of Egypt and people not know about it. Guess what happens? People start asking questions. Nobody in the Egyptian troop has a clue what's going on. And so who do the Egyptians naturally think it is? The Hebrews. He made it worse for them. So guess what? They rat him out. It was known among them. And what it says in verse 15 is that Pharaoh heard of it. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Now, Moses is a public enemy of the Egyptian state. And you're thinking like, okay, great battle sequence here. Is he like going to be able to obliterate everybody? No, you know what he does? It says that Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. He gets out of Dodge. Whatever hope we had for this guy to be a hero has turned into despair because he can't even properly rule the people and they aren't recognize him as a ruler and he can't go back into Egypt because there's a warrant out for his arrest and execution. And so he finds himself sitting at a well, but something interesting happens here. Well, I'll tell you from the text. It says, now the priest of Midian, verse 16, had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian, because that's what he looked like, delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Notice what what happens. Moses is a good-hearted guy. I like him a lot. He's a hero looking for somebody to save. He can't save his own people, so he ends up out in the wilderness of Midian, you know, scores of miles away, out of the action, but he sees oppression of these young women at the well. He fights for them. He provides for them. It enamors him with this father-in-law, and it creates a relationship to such a degree that he's like, come eat at my table. Remember that. Eating around the table conveyed fellowship, relationship. And it goes beyond an occasional thing. Look at verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. 
And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You end this final account of uh, the introductory lines, and you're thinking like, uh, well, it's not all terrible, but uh, Moses thinks it is. Moses feels that he needed to deliver his people, and what happens? Just through the circumstances of life, he finds himself without a home. He's offered a home with this pagan priest. He marries the priest's daughter, and he settles down away from the action, away from Egypt, and notice what he names his son. It gives you his mindset at the time, Gershom, meaning I'm a sojourner in a strange land. Translated, I am out of place. I am not where I should be. It's despair. Worst introduction ever. I don't know that I really want to keep listening to a song like that. I mean, seriously, just because it comes on the radio doesn't mean you have to keep listening. But there's one more measure of the introduction. It's what all the accounts have been leading up to to this point. And I want you to note something, those of you who are regular students of the Bible, what is about to take place in these next few verses is extremely rare. Very rarely will the writer of an extended narrative break off the story and make a direct comment to the readers. It doesn't happen. But it happens here. Because this sets the trajectory for the rest of the story. Look at it in your Bibles. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel And God knew. Blessing, burden, hope, despair. You're thinking, what in the world is going on here? This is our story? This is our song? We're talking about generational suffering. I mean, we feel like we're suffering in traffic during season for 10 minutes. And we're talking hundreds of years. I see no hero in this story, certainly not Moses. Who's going to step up and do something about this mess? And God heard the groanings of his people. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw them. 
than God knew. In some way, shape, or form, they finally begin to cry out to God, and he listens. When it says that he remembered his covenant, it doesn't mean like it showed up on his reminders on his iPhone. Remember means he was prepared to act. He knew the covenant the whole time. But now he had readied himself for action, for intervention. He was ready to commemorate this covenant, to act it out. And then notice that other verb. It says that God saw. God saw. Remember Moses saw. Moses saw the affliction of the people. Moses, like, he took it in. He, he tried to act. But it's not about what the human sees. It's about what God sees. And the text just leaves us. With these couple words, God knew. Remember that word earlier? There arose a king who knew not Joseph. He was not in relationship with Joseph. Same word. It isn't just that God was omniscient and knew everything. God was in relationship with these people. He was prepared to act. Do you understand, friends, the main point of this? We, as the people of God, here's our story. We know blessing and burden. We know hope and despair. And at the end of it all, we're holding on to what will be the theme of the song, that he is in relationship. He, he knows He is prepared to act. He listens. He cares. I love this because the text isn't just telling us that God can, like God is strong. We'll see that. It begins by telling us that God cares. I don't like to think of myself as the kind of person that needs care. And yet we all do. I saw it with one of my children yesterday who hurt themselves at the pool. It was a chicken fight, gone bad, as they always do. And she was hurt. But what I noticed is that, thank the Lord I've been reading this, she didn't need a chiropractor. She didn't need Advil. She needed my embrace and care. I know we're all strong and independent and just think, God, give me the resources. I'll get it done. Listen, you need to know amid all the burden, amid all the despair, God cares. I'm out of time. And so let me just borrow for a moment the words of a song that we do not sing here, but I grew up singing, that will remind those of you in Christ of the care of God in all the different seasons. It asks this question, and the verse is, I mean, the chorus is the answer, but I won't give you the chorus to the end here, so 
we finish it up. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief I find no relief though my tears flow all the night long? Does Jesus care when when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks? Is it aught to him? Does he see? And here's the answer. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. He cares. So how do you know? He's conveyed it. In Christ, he entered into the suffering, the misery, the oppression, the pain. He took it on himself. He satisfied it. He outlasted it. He overpowered it through his resurrection. And his story is now your story if you're believing and trusting in him alone. What was true of him is true of you. Though he experienced pain, he knows everlasting pleasure, and so too do you. Hold on through faith to the truth that amid the burdens and amid the despair, Jesus cares. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your sovereign care for your people in Christ. Or this is our story. This is our song. Even when we can't yet see you act, even when you haven't yet actively intervened, or you care, we know that you are for us. He who gave us his son, shall he not also freely give us all things? Or give eyes to see the caring, compassionate, strong God to those who cannot see. And for those who can, may they continue to look to him for hope amid whatever it is they face. May even this token, this sign, this preview of communion and these moments to come or sharpen our expectation and hope amid our suffering that one day, or you will feast with us and all evil and enemies will be banished. All will be well. And all is indeed now well for those who have fellowship with you through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage us in that even as we prepare for your table now. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.